Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Hello and welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week during this pandemic, we will take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am, as always, your host, Nico Perino. Well, I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. I'm recording right now from home where I've been working for the last three weeks or so. I live in Virginia, and earlier this week, our governor, Ralph Northam, ordered residents to shelter in place until June 10th. June 10th. So I might be recording from home for quite some time to come. We'll see. In any case, today we're going to discuss a topic that's somewhat relevant to our current situation. We'll be discussing how governments seek to control information. In particular, we'll be taking a historical look at how one country, the former Soviet Union, restricted access to information and stifled dissent, and what changed when the regime collapsed in 1991. To do this, we are joined by University of Maryland professor Cynthia L. Martin. She has been at the University of Maryland since 1990, where she works on the Russian faculty. Like I said, this conversation is about how the former Soviet Union and modern Russia restrict access to information or muddy the waters with disinformation. That said, we do at times broaden the conversation to discuss authoritarian regimes more generally, including how China shut down reports about the coronavirus early in the crisis and actually might still be doing so. As you'll be able to tell, I learned a lot during this conversation. It was recorded over the phone because we are sheltering in place. And I hope you learn a lot from this conversation as well. So now let's get on to the show. Professor Martin, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Honored to be invited and thanks for having me. It's a weird time to be having a conversation like this. It is. <laughs> but we'll do our best to do this uh, over the phone. Strange times we live in, yes. Yeah. I want to get started by kind of getting your background. You're on the Russian faculty at the University of Maryland. You've been there since 1990. That's right. We're going to be talking about authoritarian regimes today. What got you interested in authoritarian regimes? Hmm. Well, I guess uh, I came to it as an undergrad interested in Russian history. And so uh, I actually wanted to take a history course, my second year of college, I guess it was, as an undergrad, and it did not fit in my schedule. So I looked at that book, because it was all printed at that time, of the course schedule, which was a big newspaper-like thing, and I thought, well, what else is offered that has anything at all to do with Russia uh, that I might uh, be able to take? I took a Russian language class, and that was the beginning of the uh, sort of long-term romance with uh, studying Russian and going back and forth to the old Soviet Union and living there for a while and uh, going back and forth even today. So it was really, it started through my interest in history, uh, Russian history in particular, led me to language, and the rest is sort of, um, the rest of my adult life has been somehow related to uh, the study of that place. So... 1990 in the history of Russia, I mean, that's, that's, you know, there are a lot of changes that are happening at that time. What was it like to start teaching at the University of Maryland, joining the Russian faculty at that time? 
Yeah, it was a very different. It was a very different context than we see today. Um, oddly enough, enrollments were much higher uh, 30 years ago than they are now. Um, I don't know whether nationally they were they were mm-hmm. much higher. We experienced about an 80 percent drop over time um, into the mid 90s as the place fall, fell apart. Fewer and fewer students uh, came to study Russian, um, and then could that have been because? Um Obviously, the fall of the Berlin Wall around that time, could that have been the peak of student interest in studying Russian? I think that's what it was. I think there was a peak. Uh, there was always this interest. I think the, the sort of exoticism of the, the Soviet system, the Soviet bloc, uh, you know, the, the Cold War was ending, obviously, but it was still that sort of, that was kind of a peak. And then it peaked one other time uh, back in the late 50s and early 60s when we were really just embarking on the, on the space race uh, and uh, figuring out that we needed uh, engineers and scientists that knew this language. So there was another, another broad peak. I have an article that'll be coming out at some point in an introductory article to a volume from Georgetown. And it goes back and looks at the field precisely over this period from 85 to about 2015. Um, So it was a very different time. The place was falling apart. It was pre-internet when I started at the University of Maryland in 1990. We didn't get our email accounts until 1993. So that was certainly a different different educational context uh, and also a context in which you didn't get... uh, instantaneous real-time access to what was happening on the ground, you know, all over the world, let alone all over the country. What did the fall of the Soviet Union look like for the average citizen there? For the average citizen there? Yeah. I mean, did you spend any time there uh, prior to 1991 or a significant amount of time? Oh, yes. My first first trip there was in 1977. And then I spent uh, five summers there in the 80s on different student programs as sort of uh, an assistant to the program and all through graduate school. And then I lived there uh, during the Gorbachev, the beginning of the end. I was living there in the mid-80s, in the mid-1980s. Uh, and then I was all I was teaching at Maryland by the time that the place fell apart in, in December of '91, but um, uh, still uh, the the collapse was pretty much a total collapse. So imagine going from you know one day you have this system that everybody thought was basically eternal. It wasn't going to go anywhere. It wasn't going to budge from you know their perspective like this was an unimaginable thing that you could sort of all of a sudden the soviet union would be no more and communism would be you know relegated to the dustbin of history um at least in russia not in a couple of other places yeah. and so everything changed everything almost overnight so just sort of in practical terms people weren't getting paid um but think about things like um history uh, exams were basically just canceled for a few years because what are we going to test you on? Because you had to pass these history exams that had the history of the Communist Party, and it had a very certain propagandized, obviously, version mm-hmm. of history that students had to master in order to pass. So what happens when all of a sudden we say, oops, <laughs> I guess not. Um, they literally just didn't have history exams for a few years in the, in the university. So think about any sector of the system and think about one day there are rules. They may not be rules that you like, but one day there actually is a system and there are rules, and the next day, there are none. That's interesting you bring it up because, you know, bringing up the idea one thing, one day things are one way, and the next day they're very different. With the coronavirus thing going on right now, I'm sure many people feel that way about their lives. But in thinking about free speech and, and in particular freedom of thought, you live under an authoritarian regime for so long, and then all of a sudden that regime collapses. And that regime had previously sought 
to control or propagandize its history, the way of thinking, and all of a sudden, and, and they they often coerced it uh, in certain ways, either through surveillance or gulags. And then the next day, it's gone. What is the psyche of the average Russian like? How do they adapt to that? It's an it's a question I hadn't thought about before you actually presented the idea of taking a history exam about the history that previously there was one right answer for. Right, and now there's none. And now there's none. Right. So um, uh, it's hard to obviously categorize, you know, what the average person experiences. But yeah. um, remember that, um, att- or let's think about it this way, attempts in totalitarian regimes to control speech uh, really are attempts to control thought. Whether or not that's effective um, is another question, right? So you have groups of dissidents who are resistors, and they express their resistance, right? They're willing to take a risk, and they express their resistance, and they express their doubts. I mean, that's the, that's the key concept here, is that totalitarian regimes simply do not tolerate doubt, and Western liberal democracy with individual liberty posited at the core of our social and political organization really was quite new and, and is quite exceptional, in fact. We can talk about that. Mm-hmm. But at the core of that is that you have to allow for doubt because you uh, assume this sort of... Um, you know, individual liberty is the highest uh, goal. So there were dissidents, obviously, and dissident writers and artists and, and uh, thinkers, philosophers, uh, even scientists uh, like Andrei Sakharov, who became a, a kind of a dissident thinker, um, a figure, right, mm-hmm. who voiced their uh, opposition to the totalitarianism of the of the regime. And, of course, different periods in the 20th century, they... they um, were treated differently, uh, summarily executed, sent off to the camps, sometimes exiled to the West, like Solzhenitsyn was. Um, but uh, it doesn't also mean that the average thinking person had their thoughts completely controlled. They may have learned not to express the doubts yeah. or the cynicism. So by the time the place collapses, we could say, and I'm not going to try to, you know, make the case that I know why the Soviet system collapsed, and I can give you a, you know, a 30-second answer to that. But um, a system can't survive when enough people stop believing in it, right? This is the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, phenomenon. right. So, right. So you don't necessarily have to be expressing that lack of belief in the system to stop participating in a way that sustains the system. And so that was happening through the period of stagnation in the 70s, through the Brezhnev years, right? Mm -hmm. That was happening, this period of stagnation where whether or not you wanted to believe in this sort of vision of a utopian future where everybody works, you know, on behalf of the collective and and not on behalf of their own individual incentives, um, if you wanted to have that kind of belief, you were still faced consistently, constantly, right, with a different reality. And so I, it's, I, I'm not sure that, you know, everybody was buying into this sort of monolithic communist ideology by the time the place fell apart. I mean, you could make the case that a lack of commitment to that ideology certainly um, allowed for the place to fall apart. And, and the lack of willingness of the government at that point to coerce, right, at a certain point. Yeah. So, I mean, the average Russian lived under this sort of system for decades, you come out of it in 1991. Some of the things that we're seeing today to kind of whipsaw between generations, with especially the disinformation attempts uh, right. that come out of Russia. I, I was struck by Peter Pomerantsev's book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, which is about life in the modern Russia, in which there's almost sort of a 
it presents the situation in Russia as such in which the average citizen just it almost expects there to be disinformation and not be told the truth. Right. And as a result, it's just kind of agnostic or bored by the idea of truth. And I wonder if that's the result of a legacy under a system where you're being told one thing about this utopia, but you were witnessing another thing. Mm-hmm. And you've just, your whole life has been that. It's your whole parents' life, your whole grandparents' life has been that. So, you know, you might ostensibly have a little bit more freedom today, but you're just jaded. Cynical. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'd take it back even prior to the Soviet system, right? Because prior to that, they had a Tsar, so they had a monarchy, which we could argue is also a, a worldview that is sort of totalitarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could talk about, you know, what makes a, a worldview totalitarian as opposed to, you know, what uh, what our Western liberal democracies are predicated upon and why uh, freedom of speech uh, is so fiercely defended in the Western liberal democracies and so threatening in any totalitarian system, whether it's sort of pre-modern and religious or the- theocratic today or 20th century secular systems, right? They all have a lot of things in common. But um, so, but I would say that um, educated Russians, meaning, you know, literate Russians who came through even their education system in the, in the Soviet system, have a long history predating the Soviet system of learning to read between the lines, right? So they're mm-hmm. They're writers, they're great writers, they're, uh, they're uh, writers uh, of the, the great classics of the 19th century. Um, they were, uh, to be kind of worthy of being a great writer, you had to be in trouble with the authorities at some point, right? Even Pushkin, you know, Alexander Pushkin was sort of exiled. Now he was exiled to his family's estate. But still, um, uh, they got in trouble with the authorities. Why? Because there was a sort of a totalitarian worldview and that sort of criticism of the truth or criticism of the authorities was potentially dangerous. And so you had to take those people and isolate them from being able to communicate with uh, their readers, basically, at that time, right? Pre-internet, obviously, yeah. you know, pre-modern technology, pre-cell phones, pre-phones, right? So this really predates this kind of looking at whatever is presented to you and thinking, huh, there must be something going on. There's a subtext here reading between the lines, something that Americans don't do very well, and I don't mean to denigrate our ability to to read and think deeply, but we have those kinds of critical public debates about things out in the open in our political writing. We didn't turn to our artists to find that, right? Where Russian history has turned to basically the arts, philosophy, they became sort of a religion in the 20th century, but it was looking for another place to find the exploration of ideas that were not, that did not conform to the single idea that was being presented, right? Yeah. There's a long history of sort of looking at what the authorities are saying, no matter who they are, and having a kind of skepticism that oddly enough, we um, kind of definitely have in the air in Western liberal democracies, looking at authority and thinking, hmm, okay, but power needs to be checked for a lot of reasons, right? So, yeah, a lot of Soviets, uh, a lot of Soviets learned to play the game of keeping their mouths shut, right? So it was about, it was about learning how to say the right things, but you could still think different things. But they're not unique in having to do that, though. I mean, before the Western liberal democracies were Western liberal democracies, they were often uh, authoritarian, uh, lived under authoritarian regimes, whether you think of the fiefdoms or the theocracies. Absolutely. So, you know, if we're tracking the timeline of the Russian experience over the past two centuries, you know, we were looking at the authoritarianism under the czars, where creative expression is often 
uh, comes through unique and, and creative means, artistic means. And then you have the more blunt trauma, blunt force censorship that you experience in the Soviet Union. And then pr- you transition out of that into what you might expect to be a more Western liberal approach under Yeltsin in the 90s, uh, but that really just kind of um, morphed into sort of jaded cynicism uh, and, and disillusion with the truth. I don't know that you had that, or maybe you did, and I just am not a good enough historian of it, in all of the Western societies as well, coming out of whether it's the, the theocracies in any given country or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I w- would say, um, so first of all, it's a little hard for us in the West to look at Putin's Russia and imagine that it's anything but an a, a turning back toward a kind of a Soviet totalitarian system. Yeah, I'm sure I have a caricatured, cartoonish view of Russia. <laughs> I've never been there. I don't speak Russian. Yeah, it's not entirely true, right? Putin's Russia is not Stalin's Russia, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the Cato Institute has a, has a panel discussion there where a professor from, I think, Kodkin from Princeton, uh, anybody could take a look at it, you can find it pretty easily, kind of says, you know, okay, let's look at this. Let's compare this and see, right? And they're really, Putin is not Stalin, right? Mm-hmm. So um, today's Russia is dramatically different. It is not a communist centralized economy anymore, right? They've moved to a free market, and one could argue that um, with moving to free market enterprise, and that free market enterprise is almost uh, inseparable from uh, a kind of a democratic, right, um, political system, uh, because it allows for individuals to act in individual interest, which very often then is in the interest of the neighbor and, and et cetera. So today's Russia is, is far away from what it was 30 years ago. Think about the period of time to uh, sort of affect that transformation. 30 years is nothing. It's a little blip in human history. So uh, people came out of literally, right, one day you are in this system and you you don't have access to the kind of freedom of, you know, access to information, right? You didn't have, well, there was the Internet, like I said. Internet was not in everybody's pocket when the place fell apart. So... Things start exploding all at once, right? Access to information all around the world because you've got the internet, right? Access to your own history that had been repressed and suppressed uh, from, you know, dissident writers to artists uh, to thinkers, etc. And there's no system. We have to create a constitution. We have to decide how we're going to live together, right? This is literally create a system out of out of whole cloth, but not doing it. Let's say how we did it with uh, what was the population and the colonies and how many people were trying to do this, right? Um, so, so it's a it's that kind of you know total case. So you can understand how people during a, the immediate post-Soviet period were literally trying to figure out how to survive. Mm-hmm. Right? How do you survive? You're not really thinking about political ideology. You're not really thinking about you know okay. Let me let me think about what kind of constitution I'll go vote for. You weren't even thinking about voting. You were thinking, I'm not getting a paycheck for six weeks, eight weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks. What am I supposed to do? Every every enterprise um, I had worked in a publishing house there for some of the years that I lived there. So every enterprise that was state owned in this in the Soviet system and communism, socialism, they never claimed to have reached communism. You know that was the dream. We were headed there, right? That was the idea. Um, but every system, there was no private ownership of any of that. The system collapses. Everything now gets to be privatized. And how do you decide? It's like who makes the Q-tips? Who makes you know the mouse pads? Exactly. So the so the the reinvention of an economy at the same time as you're reinventing a political system, obviously they're interconnected, right? But people were literally trying to figure out 
how to get from one day to the next, right? Who's in charge? Who's paying bills? How do I get my salary? How do I get food? What's the supply chain like, right? It's kind of some of the things we're thinking about today, maybe. I don't know. Um, but uh, so, so they weren't really thinking as much about, um, you know, oh, we're free from this, you know, communist, we're coming out from this communist winter and we're now going to be, you know, Western liberal democratic society. I think that that was a little bit of a of an unrealistic uh, expectation of uh, America's enthusiasm that, oh, we won the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapsed, they're going to be just like us, right, in no time at all, was a little bit of a mistake on our part, perhaps, to think that that um, is possible in a very short period of time. Well, when you frame it like that, it it just seems astounding that they've gotten as far as they have in 30 years. I mean, the idea that you can build a society essentially from scratch, because as you, you put it, and I'm, I'm not a historian of this by any means, uh, as you put it, it's almost like no one had forewarning. One day things were one way, the next they were not there. The system was slowly sort of, you know, disintegrating, right? People were not motivated. The economy was definitely in trouble, right? There was, that, which was part of the, then you lacked the, the belief. I mean, but in the, in the mid-1980s, you know, the lead up to this, things like sugar and meat were still rationed in certain parts of that country. So, of course, people who even were maybe ideologically committed in some way still looked at it and said, wait a minute, you know, I still, I, I can't get, I can't get basic goods. What do you mean we're marching towards some sort of a utopia? So it was it was not doing it's not as though there was no warning, but I don't think that the masses thought, you know, the place literally the system is going to collapse. Gorbachev remember came in and he was a reformer. He wasn't a let's crash and burn the system. He wasn't a revolutionary that was saying this communist experiment of ours is over. We need to we need to abandon it. We we need to put it in the past. Write about it in the history mm-hmm. books. We need to abandon it. We need to transition to a free market economy, um, liberalization of our democratic process. You know, free uh, free and open elections. He wasn't saying any of that. He was saying the system isn't working. Uh, there are serious problems. So perestroika was actually you know the restructuring. Right. We've we've got mm-hmm. that word in the in the English language now for the, from that. We need to restructure. We need to rebuild. We need to figure out how to redo the things that aren't working right. And in order to do that, we need glossness, which means openness. And it doesn't mean let's open the borders. It means openness. It's related to the old Russian root for voice, which is interesting. In other words, we have to talk about the problems if we're going to fix the problems. Mm-hmm. In a way, his reforms started you know, with this idea that you've got to tell me what these problems are. We've got to talk about what the problems are, or we're not going to be able to fix them. Were they actually able to do that? Well, that's what he started. That's, that was sort of what Gorbachev launched, right? And so mm-hmm. he would go around to collective farms, and he would talk to people, and you would see things on TV in those early days, in the, in the mid-80s, mid to late 80s, during the Gorbachev era, and then into the 90s. You saw a lot of expose-type things on the television that were just unheard of prior to that. So people were being honest when they were being asked. Yes, yeah, people were being honest, right. And oh, they wow. were able to express their disillusionment. So that was sort of happening. But mm-hmm. still, the collapse of the whole system, right? So everything that had been nationalized in the early part of the 20th century was now going to be privatized. That's how you get your oligarchs. That's how you get your billionaires. That's how you get your trillionaires. You know, that's yeah. how you get your gazillionaires, right? <laughs> how do you get them? Because they were in the right place at the right time under the old system to then be at the top of the food chain when things start to get privatized. Yeah, and how does that how does that even happen? Do you bring in the the world world leaders to help? I mean, I don't know the history. Very very chaotically. So perhaps, you know, you take a an enterprise like the publishing house I worked in and now it's going to have to be privatized and so you say, "Okay, all these employees are going to be able to get a stake in it." 
like a like a stock almost, right? You know, this is it's, we're all going to own it now. It sounds like a weird form of collectivism as well. Exactly, but then and then you have you know people desperate for that money, so you have people who have a little bit more resources or who are at the top of the system in control of certain amount of sort of wealth and resources, saying, okay, well here you go, I'll buy you out. Yeah. There you go, I'll buy your portion, right? And then you have this sort of amassing of great wealth in the hands of the people who were able to figure out how to do that. Great Ponzi schemes. Excuse my ignorance, but under the Soviet Union, would some people make more than others? No, pretty much no. Pretty much no. Was that supposed to be the idea initially? Right. That was the idea initially. So you could be a doctor or a taxi cab driver and you were going to make about the same. So the, um, uh, I think one of the major flaws that's under, um, underestimated, I guess, or underanalyzed is perhaps, uh, this is going to sound a little bit, um, let's see, how do I put this? <laughs> do, we, do we think there's something to this idea of human nature? Or is that a concept that is socially constructed? Because human nature, the way free market enterprise sees it, we might not want to call it human nature anymore. It's not a very term that's you know very popular, but it presumes, let's just say we presume that humans will act in their own self-interest, mm-hmm. which then often means as I'm acting in my self-interest, I'm also going to do something for the market that is going to make your life easier. Yeah. It's not through the benevolence of the butcher and the baker that dinner gets on your table. Yeah. Exactly. So that's an incentive, right? Well, the communist system, the the kind of theory, the idea was that humans aren't born with a human nature. Now we can get very sort of theological here and philosophical here, but but that idea, the Western idea of, you know, humans acting in their own self-interest very much comes from a Judeo-Christian vision of who we are as human beings on the planet. We can talk about that. But the communist system, the Marxist system, right, says religion is the opiate of the masses, humans are born blank slates, they're not born um, good and bad. They're not born bifurcated. They're not born to act in their own self-interest against the self-interest of the collective. They only do bad things because they're in bad circumstances. So if we just put them in the right circumstances, they will be moral beings. They will act on behalf of the, of the collective. And so this, the 20th century Soviet system basically didn't sort of admit systematically that human beings will very much act in their own self-interest if you give them something to be motivated for, and if that, if that, if that, if they can actually see uh, the results of their actions, leading to something that would serve their interests. So when everybody's getting paid the same amount, and everybody's working at the same capacity, um, why am I going to? Uh, let's see. Everybody has a week, a weekly norm. When I worked in a publishing house, you have a weekly norm. You have to do so many pages a week of the translation, or the editing, or whatever. I literally could accomplish it in a day. But what was the incentive for anybody inside of that system? Now I was kind of an observer to the system as I was even working in it. But you know, what's the incentive for anybody to say, well, I'm going to do five times the, the weekly norm because I can do five times the weekly norm, but I get the same salary as everybody else. And then not only that, but then you get collective peer pressure that says, oh, no, don't do that, because then you're going to show that the weekly norm is really ridiculously low, and then they're going to expect all of us to be able to produce the way you produce, and we don't want that to happen. Yeah, I was going to ask, part of the reason that I do my job is not necessarily just because of the salary, but rather because it gives me sort of purpose and meaning. Exactly. But it sounds like, I mean, presumably the Russians aren't void of that, that character trait as well, but it sounds like there's social pressures 
there. Right. Well, so now you see that unleashed. So when you said earlier, how did they get so far so fast, right, after the collapse, to be back sort of as a superpower, um, that's one of the reasons, right? It unleashed this. Now, it's kind of, you know, we're, trading, we're, we're treading into interesting territory here, but uh, humans are humans, right? You have mm-hmm. to decide certain basic things that you believe about, about humanity and about humans when you set about creating a political system. That's one of the beliefs in Western, highly industrialized, very successful economies is that humans are motivated by a certain amount of self-interest. And that interest doesn't have to be just monetary, and it's not the self-interest is not the same as selfish. And giving you a sense of satisfaction can also be a self-interest, right? Yeah. So, um, so that was sort of unleashed. So that's one answer to the question is sort of, well, um, they, yeah, they put them in a different kind of a context where you now had to figure out how to make your way very frightening uh, because now you're responsible in a way that you weren't responsible when you had cradle-to-grave minimal kind of subsistence existence for everybody. Now it really is a kind of an individual responsibility to get out there and you know give the marketplace something that the marketplace, that somebody else in the marketplace wants and is willing to pay you for. And so it's a very different kind of thing. But then when you look at just how far they've come, you think in the West, very often you read about Putin here as sort of, you know, well, how come he's so popular? And they can't believe he's so popular. And and he's going to be president until he dies. <laughs> right. And he must not really be popular. And Russians really must secretly still, you know, want to just break free of this, you know, Putin authoritarian regime. Let's, as I try to get my students to do, right, let's try to look at it from within that system as opposed to from our perspective, right? Look at where they were. They were essentially humiliated and in a state of total collapse and chaos just about 30 years ago. And now they're back on the world scene as a major player. And they are proud of the country again. And they look at Putin and they say, yeah, yeah, he's, he's acting in Russia's interest. And he's making us great again. And why would we not like this? Mm. And the system is more stable than it was before. There is what you would consider to be a growing middle class, right? Which is, is clearly uh, one of the things that helps to keep a system stable is you have people who are invested in the continuity of the system. So when you have the very, very poor and the very, very rich and no middle class, you don't have a big class of people invested in the stability of the system. The rich can take care of themselves no matter what, and the poor are ready to go to the barricades. So there's this growing, you know, growing group of, of Russians that are saying, yeah, life is at least stable, right? Nobody's, you know, nobody's pulling it out from under us again. Just leave us alone and let us, you know, let us have a a decent um, standard of living for a while. Now, of course, that's not all over the country. A lot of what I'm talking about is really the big cities, you know, Moscow, St. Petersburg. But it's a remarkable comeback from total chaos. Speaking of the total chaos, you hear the story about, I believe it was Gorbachev visiting the grocery store here in the United States. Is that is that apocryphal or did that actually happen? And was he actually astounded by it? Yeah, astounded by it. Absolutely. It's pretty, um, it, pretty astounding. So imagine... Um, Imagine mid-80s, Gorbachev comes on the scene in 1985 or so, and there's still ration coupons for things like sugar and meat in certain parts of the country, like even in their industrial Urals, where, they're, where they are, um, uh, you know, the, the industrial, military industrial complex is basically housed, and you still have uh, shortages of food, 
food shortages mm. or, you know, hard to get items that are everyday kinds of items. Like toilet paper today. <laughs> like toilet paper, exactly. Standing in line for toilet paper, which was, you know, it, was, it sounds almost comical at this point, but it was absolutely true. And then you come to a Western supermarket, and just let me give you a little bit of a perspective here, where you have an entire row devoted to basically dogs and cats and birds too. Just imagine the contrast, right? Mm. The, imagine the contrast, right? You go into a grocery store that, first of all, is you know enormous, and then you have uh, not just em- not just not empty shelves. You have shelves that are sort of overflowing, and more f- more to get from you know in the back of the store, and then you have an entire row devoted to our furry little friends. <laughs> yeah. How can you not be astounded, right? So um, yeah, he he was quite quite astounded. Um, and that was, that was always one of the things that people, you know, coming from that sort of period of stagnation in the 70s and the 80s that would come to the West and just the abundance, the sheer abundance of the avail- availability of goods and services um, was actually mind-blowing. So when you were working at this book publisher, I didn't know you had done that. Um, so it, it leads certain to certain questions like what sort of books did you publish? Were those books reviewed by a censor? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I worked in a publishing house because I wanted to stay in Russia. So I had gone for a year uh, during graduate school to go to a, a institute for language and, and literature teachers and it was part of my graduate program when I was at Penn. I, you know, took this year to go there and it was sort of during the during my uh, PhD program and I wanted to stay after that and I uh, there was another American working there, very few of us working in that kind of capacity at the time and she was leaving this job at the publishing house and so they were looking for another English uh, language editor and translator to take her place. So we kind of switched places. She went back. I took a leave of absence from Penn. I said, I'll be back. Don't worry but I'm going to you know, stay for a year, and then it turned into another year. And it was actually a publishing house, a scientific publishing house. So we did things like everything from popular science, like beekeeping and uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. how, the, how the universe was born and things like that, um, and medical uh, textbooks that would be exported to India and different places. Uh, and so I worked there for a couple of years, and um, it definitely, everything went through the censors. It took forever to get anything published. Um, would they actually read the whole book? Yeah, yeah. But whenever we, oh yeah, but whenever we were, um, whenever there was a holiday, so this leads us to uh, control over information. Maybe back a little bit to uh, the idea of you know freedom of access to information and free speech. Um, when there's a holiday, uh, a three day holiday, let's say, all of the typewriters from our department would all be put into a single room and that room would then be sealed and they would put like they would solder a seal and a wire across the door so that you knew when everybody came back from the holiday that nobody had gotten in and used the typewriters so wait you couldn't use you they, they didn't want people to have writing implements they didn't want them to have typewriters because you could replicate sort of dissident you know (laughs) materials Right. Wow. So all typewriters were registered. All their keystrokes were registered. So if they did have to track down, you know, who was typing what, um, in 1985, let's say, uh, there was no place in the city of Moscow where you could get a Xerox copy made, except in the Lenin Library, which is the largest library in the world at the time. And here's how that went if you wanted to get a copy of something. This is how dramatically things have changed, right? If you wanted to get a copy of something, first of all, you had to have access by having a library pass into that 
library, and I had one as a you know foreign researcher or whatever. Um, and mine clearly said that I was there, and my specialization was literature and, and language. And so twice a week they had uh, a thousand-page limit, uh, 20 pages per person for the entire city, the entire library. Uh, and so you could go with whatever it was that you wanted to make a copy of to a little window that opened those two days a week at, you know, let's say 10 a.m., but people lined up as soon as the library opened at, let's say, 8 and you'd wait in line and hand in your little, you know, what you wanted, and you could have a maximum of 20 pages, and you'd come back a few days later to see whether or not your request was approved, and you would get your 20 pages. If they had approved it, they would tell you when you could get your 20 pages. Literally, I could copy by hand 20 pages faster than it would take me. Yeah, you might get a cramp, but (laughs) less nerve-wracking. Right, so that was the control over access to information, to knowledge. Holy cow, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. So that all, you know, that all just sort of imploded as well when the system imploded. And then on the heels of that implosion, we get the sort of invention, not the invention of the Internet. The Internet was invented long before that. It was used for military purposes long before that. But this sort of explosion of access to this thing called the World Wide Web. And how do you control that access now, right? So even in a totalitarian regime like Russia, I, I, I hesitate, hesitate to call it a totalitarian regime. It's not Iran. It's not North Korea. It's not China, right? Mm-hmm. It is a very different place than those places. Um, and yes, there is still, you know, it's still a, a danger to be a journalist and be muckraking against the wrong kind of people. But there are, there's so much more access to multiple views, multiple sources of information than there was even 20 years ago, right? So the internet is an interesting question, right? China is trying to do walk that fine line of controlling, right? What people can do. You have to have access to the internet to participate in the modern world, but it's also a very dangerous thing because at the push of a button, somebody can now disseminate something that you don't want other people to see. That the powers that be don't want other people to see. Well, that creates problems too. I mean, we're hearing reports now about how China censored early reports about the COVID nineteen virus. And exactly. Perhaps had they been less censorious, those reports would have gotten out earlier. The response could have been quicker, and it might not have. It might have been an epi- epidemic, but not the pandemic that it ended up turning into. I mean, we hear that story about uh, I forget the doctor's name who blew the whistle early and was admonished by police and later died of the of the virus. Right. Absolutely. So access to information is both crucial in the modern world, and it is something that threatens totalitarian regimes because it threatens the notion that there is a selected group of humans that have greater access to the truth and the way things ought to be. They are special humans in a religious sense. We would think of them as being divine if it were a monarchy, right? Mm -hmm. In a secular totalitarian regime, uh, they're not divine by virtue of a certain bloodline or access to the divine, but they are special in that they have been enlightened enough, they have access to the truth. And and uh, threatening that picture of infallibility threatens the whole system. The Chernobyl uh, disaster. I watched the mini HBO miniseries. That's uh, about the extent of my knowledge of it. Frightening st- too, but even in that disaster, at least from the miniseries perspective, there were efforts to clamp out down on what actually happened on the ground there. And my instinct, the instinct or the suggestion from the show was, had they been more open, they could have gotten more. And if it had been an open society in the first place, you could have gotten international help in containing it, right, and addressing it, right. 
Right. Absolutely. So there was an initial effort to not um, not uh, discuss, not to even publicize the fact that it had happened, right? Uh, not to sort of have it in the press. And it was when I believe it was in Scandinavia there was uh, there some of their nuclear monitors picked up um, some of the fallout that had blown that uh, way. Some of the fallout, right? And it became impossible to to hide at that point, right? Um, and so for a lot of reasons, right, one, uh, one reason is, you know, the, the, you have to get the, the, the lay of the land, sort of what's really happening, right? Uh, and you saw in that miniseries, and I think it was probably pretty, pretty true to form in that system where you had political um, um, considerations um, pushing back on the engineers and the scientists when the engineers and the scientists were saying, you know, X, you would have political co- uh, considerations that were sort of uh, trumping those um, those scientific assessments, uh, which happens in those totalitarian regimes again, because the system itself is predicated upon a kind of that inner inner circle of the politicos who are the leaders who know best. Right? There's not that diffusion of uh, responsibility and power uh, that you have in in a system that maybe is messy as ours, but uh, we certainly do have a diffusion of power in the United States. The leaders in the late Soviet Union, were they true believers in the communist cause or were they, they, they play acting essentially in order to? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we can um, answer that. Because Lenin and Stalin, they were true believers, at least as Andrew Roberts, who I recently... Right. Certainly, certainly Lenin was a true believer. Stalin was a true believer to a degree. And then you wonder by the end, you know, uh, it was all about power, et cetera. Um, but, um, yeah, you wonder uh, today. But the same is sort of true of a lot of uh, these totalitarian regimes, right? You wonder is, you know, uh, leader of North Korea really a true believer um, mm-hmm. uh, in the, uh, you know, the, the leaders of uh, uh, fundamentalism uh, that, that, is, uh, that we would call perhaps ISIS, you know, are the, are the ones at the top uh, true believers, or do they also use the belief in that promise of a promised land? Uh, do they use that to manipulate those below them, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever for whatever reason? So it's really hard to say what what it means to be a true believer. Yeah, you need to search into someone's heart almost, and that you can't do that. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty hard to do. When you were when you were at the book publishing house. As a Westerner, were you surveilled? Do you think? Do you have any experiences with that? Absolutely. No, we know. We we actually know that that was the case. Uh, <laughs> I also was there at a time when when uh, U.S. Russian relations were not very good. Uh, we've been here before. We've been at a, at uh, low points in our in our relationship, uh, our relationship over time. Um, uh, so I had a contract that was for a year, but my visa was renewed every month. And that was one way of saying, behave yourself, behave yourself, behave yourself, because we can yank your visa anytime. Yeah, that could be stressful. You would never feel like you're in a stable situation. Right, right, a little stressful. Um, there were, there was definitely surveillance outside of our apartment building. I lived with a woman from Iraq. She was in the Arabic department, and I was in the English department, and they put us together in, a, in an apartment. Uh, and so we know that there were, there were, every once in a while, we'd see these black you know, government-type official cars outside of our apartment building, which was not a foreigner's neighborhood at all, so it was very easy to spot. Um, we know that the phone was, you know, tapped and, and that kind of thing. So the way that system or the way a system predicated upon uh, sort of surveillance or fear. Look, no, no, um, 
no police state can surveil 100% of the people 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. Although we're starting to wonder about that now in the age of big tech. <laughs> yeah. Is our right? Is our is our new fear not going to be Big Brother in the form of a pervasive and uh, 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 sort of all pervasive and intrusive government? Is our new fear going to be the potential to surveil and control um, via big tech, basically? But um, Back to the back to the you know pre-internet age and the pre-big tech age, uh, no system could surveil everybody all the time. So the idea is is today the day, right? So is this the time that you're going to transgress and they're going to catch you? So it you can you can predicate that system on a sense of insecurity about Big Brother watching, since you know that Big Brothers can't be watching all the time. Yeah. But what if what if it's today? So you walk straight because what if it's today's the day you don't want to get caught going a little to the left, a little to the right. Hmm. So if you have something to lose, right, that's the other thing, is that a totalitarian system uh, works well when the people it is controlling still have something to lose. Well, I, I, I sometimes wonder why these totalitarian systems uh, didn't just kill off their dis dissidents. Of course, some of them were. But, you know, you, you have Solzhenitsyn, you know, who they just ship off. Right. Well, you do. Uh, so earlier, there were earlier days where they did just kill them off, right? The effort mm -hmm. was just to simply eliminate them. You send them off to the camps. Most of them didn't survive when they were sent off to the camps or they were summarily executed in, you know, places, the prisons where they were, where they were taken off. Um, by the time you get to 1974 or something, which is when uh, Solzhenitsyn is then exiled to the West, basically put on a plane, arrested in the night. Now, he had already served time in prison and, and you know, had already become a, kind of an established dissident. But he was, uh, you know, arrested in the middle of the night and put on a plane and given a couple of marks uh, because they were sending him to Germany, basically. Why would they do that? Why It just seems like he could be more dangerous abroad. <laughs> right. Well, he writes, he, writes about, he writes about not knowing whether he was going back to the camps or going to the West by waiting to see what, where the sun was in the sky, mm -hmm. in the direction that he was flying. Um, why would we do that? Well, again, think about uh, controlling access to ideas that are dangerous to the regime. So in the early days, uh, destroying the, the carriers of those ideas uh, was the preferred way of protecting that, you know, the regime mm -hmm. from the, the potential of infection, right? By the, there was a liberalization period called the Thaw with, that Khrushchev entered in, a secret speech in 1956, post-Stalin, uh, the secret speech before the Communist um, Party Congress, where Khrushchev basically says, uh, we kind of were excessive in this, you know, in, in the abuses of Stalinism and Stalin, Stalin's a, a tight grip on the country. And there was a thaw, there was a period of a thaw. It's a very interesting, interesting um, continuation into the early 90s and the breakup of the Soviet Union, if you just bear with me for a minute. So there was this interesting thaw where they said, okay, we really were excessive and we need to liberalize a little bit. So this was in, you know, 60, 61. Solzhenitsyn's first work gets published in, well, his, not his first work, but he published in that time period by a very brave uh, editor of the literary journal called New World, publishes one day in the, in the life of Ivan Denisevich, which was just, you know, this little diary of one day in the life of one of these prisoners in one of the camps. So this was just sort of jaw-dropping, right, that this was published. So this was a liberalization, a kind of a, they called it the thaw. And so that gets clamped down on. It only lasts a few years. It gets clamped down on by the end of the 60s, certainly. But there is this period in the early 60s where there is this thaw. 
and there is more access to the West during this thought period, right? And we have Western reporters, more of them. Of course, there were some there during the war. There were some there in the 30s, even in the 20s. There was John Reed was there during the Russian Revolution, Amer the only American buried in the in the uh, Kremlin Wall. Uh, and he died there, you know, covering the revolution. So, but you had this opening up in that period in the 60s, right? So it was not as easy at that point then to simply have somebody like Solzhenitsyn disappear because it would have been found out by the West, right? Yeah. So the, it, one of the, but still he's more dangerous inside the country infecting his compatriots then he is if you can isolate him outside of the borders because there was no internet again, right? So this idea of controlling your physical borders was another, you control the means of production of, of producing texts and you know mimeographs and Xerox machines and all of those things, typewriters, all of those things that predate the internet were very tightly controlled. And then, then the next, you know, also controlling actually the physical access to the country. So somebody's more dangerous inside the country at a certain point than if you kick them out. So that's why somebody like Solzhenitsyn would be kicked out. Now, going back to this thaw period, so what's really interesting is, think about the age, the age of young people coming to sort of social and political consciousness in that period of the thaw in the 60s, right? By the time you get to Gorbachev, coming, he's in his 50s in the mid-1980s, he's precisely that generation. Yeah. And the people that are then able to sort of take charge of this collapse of the old system and a reimagining of a new system are precisely in that age range that had experienced this liberalization during the thaw. They were in their 20s and 30s at that point. Now they're in their 50s, 40s and 50s by the mid-80s. And that means that they are in positions where they have enough sort of, I guess, status and power to affect change, but they're not in their 70s and 80s, right? They're not on the sort of way out of those positions. So much of what you're saying is making me think of so many different things, including uh, the question, how aware would someone in their 20s or 30s during the 60s, during the thaw in the Soviet Union, been aware of what was happening outside of the country? Like, for example, were they aware of the Woodstock and the free love and, you know... Sure. And was that influencing them? Yeah, rock and roll was considered to be, you know, <laughs> decadent Western influence. But nonetheless, they were also growing their own rockers at the same time, right? Uh -huh. Because of that, because of that influence. There was definitely more and more interaction like that. They, and they, so the intellectual elite and the educated elite, right, would have had much more access to information. You did have a very robust Voice of America, very robust sort of, you know, um, BBC uh, transmissions into the country, et cetera. So people who spoke English, people who spoke foreign languages, people who could, act, could get access, absolutely. And there were educational exchanges starting up at that point, many more tourists coming into the country, Along with tourists coming into the country, you had things like um, old DVDs, uh, not DVDs, uh, VCR tapes, right? Old, mm -hmm. old tapes, VCR tapes. Uh, and so there's always been this kind of, you know, underlying, uh, half-joking uh, half idea that, you know, the VCR and, the, and the, the bootleg tapes from the West really caused the collapse because it showed people that the West wasn't this big evil place, right? Um, that they could actually see and not just hear about the ideology of the, you know, the, the capitalist uh, 
the evil capitalist West, but they could they could actually see in movies, and you could see grocery stores in movies, and you could see cities in the in the West in movies, and all of a sudden you would start thinking, wow, it doesn't look like such an awful place after all. Now, obviously, movies are you know, movies, not all documentaries, but still, there was a lot more of that kind of um, access, uh, much different than it would be today with the internet. By way of closing, let's talk about today. How should we think about Russia today? its regime uh, when it comes to free speech, free inquiry. And do you think, I mean, you've done a pretty good job of convincing me that things are much, much, much better than they were a few decades ago, at least with regard to the liberalization of Russia. But is it moving in a more liberal direction? And what do we make of this, like the disinformation campaigns? What are they, what are they trying to accomplish? It's a compound question, which is never good to ask, but I want to just get your general take on. on right. Well, um, let's, let me start with this disinformation campaign. So um, we're rivals still in some way, right? We're, it's not the old Cold War. It's not uh, democracy fighting communism because, like it or not, Russians really do vote now, and people here don't. They want to think that all of the elections might be rigged, but... Um, but they actually have some some interesting um, things happen when they allow people to go out and vote, and people are becoming more socially conscious. Didn't something happen in Moscow, like the mayor of Moscow or something? Wasn't a yes, there and they and they um, right and they and they uh, they had some of these uh, these uh, restrictions that kept people off the ballot, right? Mm-hmm. And young people protested. They were out in the streets. They were protesting these local elections. Now that's kind of unheard of, right? In the past, that people even participated like that um, in a kind of a social movement that said, wait a minute, we don't like what our, our political um, leaders are doing. So that's op- that, that gives me some optimism, right, that things are going in the right direction. Young people are more socially conscious and more politically active and conscious than ever before. So that's, that's a, kind of a good thing. Um, but we're kind of still rivals, U.S. and, and Russia, right? So there's disinformation campaign. Um, uh, I'm not sure um, whether we maybe... Oh, let me see. How shall I? How shall I start with this? Um, we have meddled in each other's internal affairs uh, uh-huh. for at least the last century and a half. <laughs> Let's put it that way, right? Yeah. We have wanted to meddle in each other's affairs <laughs> since then, right? Through things like propaganda and Voice of America, or you know, whatever you want to. One hundred and eighty thousand dollars in Facebook ads. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So on the one hand, uh, we want to we look at the other that we're sort of competing with, and we want to be able to poke them every once in a while and say, things aren't so great, you know, you're not so great, we're better than you, and, you know, let's, let's see if we can cause a little bit of mischief here, right? Um, I, um, I, I also think, um, if, if you think about um, from a Russian perspective, okay, let's imagine again a Russian perspective saying, look at those silly Americans who think... Silly Americans, naive Americans, or really ignorant Americans who think that um, Russia is so powerful that we, through a disinformation campaign, can actually affect the way millions of Americans think. We really are very powerful, aren't we? Yeah, not a regional power, as Obama said. This is a this is this is right. This is heady if you're really thinking about it. So instead, they just kind of ha ha ha, you know, because it 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 does make us look gullible and um, not very well informed if some crazy things that come out on Facebook uh, help me to decide how to participate in my own democratic process. Mm -hmm. 
right? It it kind of gives them, I think, a little bit too much power. And I think that that narrative has been used a little bit too much here to explain outcomes that people were unhappy with, to blame it all on the Russians, right? Yeah. Um, I would suggest that in earlier days, um, Russians would get away with it and we wouldn't know that it was the Russians. Mm-hmm. So, um, so disinformation. I think we've we've played a disinformation game on both sides for a very long time. They're probably playing at it now uh, harder than we are playing at it inside of Russia. We exercised a, a very significant campaign in the Ukraine to try to keep the Ukraine from going to uh, back into the sphere of influence of Russia. And Russia would have seen that very much so, not as a disinformation campaign, but as a real uh, interference in the internal affairs of Ukraine, right, by spending $3 billion, $4 billion in the State Department to try to make sure that Ukraine ended up in NATO, right? Mm-hmm. So so we're still sort of meddling in each other's, not just in Facebook ads, but in very significant and substantial ways in each other's uh, affairs. Um, so that's, uh, that's problematic uh, to a degree, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also something we've been doing for 150 years, and it's not just with Russia. We do it all around the world, you know. We back certain candidates in certain countries for a variety of reasons because we think that they'll be more positive to uh, Americans' interests, and we support them in certain ways with money and with uh, with democracy, democratic uh, institutions, organizations, volunteerism. Yeah, Venezuela, case in point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Israel. You know. Yeah, we do it. So, um, so that's one thing. I think it's not it's not that the sky is falling that this is something new. Um, you know, big powers are looking to to sustain their power and to uh, act in their own best interest. Um, so I think, so there's that. Um, there is a lot of independent journalism happening in Russia. It's not nearly uh, what you would see uh, in the West, right? But again, uh, think about that entire enterprise of quote-unquote journalism going from being completely state-run to being essentially privatized. So now you still have the major, you know, the major state sort of, um, state-run uh, channels on TV and on the radio, etc. And everybody knows that these are the ones that pretty much, you know, they're supportive of the regime, they're supportive of Putin, they're pretty much the standard bearers for um, sustaining things, power the way it is. But then you have, you know, blogs and independent journalism and access to um, you know, writings that are outside of the country as well. So, so there, there's, uh, I think, a degree of liberalization of the press that is also unprecedented. And again, it's only been 30 years, so they're they're figuring this out, right? Yeah. So I think that's positive. That's pretty positive. When I look at the at the, the sort of the big picture of U.S.-Russia relations as well, and again, I'm not a you know I'm not a political scientist. That was my undergraduate degree, but I'm not a political scientist. At, but at this point, right, when you look at the, the sort of the world, um, the context of, of our place and Russia's place in the world, we have a lot of common interests strategically to be partners, and I think that that's um, I think that that's uh, been a missed opportunity in our efforts to blame Russia for. Lots of things that are happening internally in the United States. So we've missed the opportunity to partner in a way against, let's say, fundamentalist uh, terrorist organizations yeah. or destabilization in the Middle East or, or um, speaking of today, the coronavirus, right? Yeah, or the pushing the oil prices down. Or the oil prices, right? Yeah. Not pushing Russia into the into the in, into the hands of sort of into the into the sort in, toward China 
instead of toward, you know, partnering more with us. So, so I think there's been some really missed opportunities. Um, I'm not a Putin apologist. I don't mean to come off like a, a Putin apologist, uh, of course. But, um, but when you just think of, you know, take Putin out, take Trump out, just think of U.S.-Russian interests in the world. Yeah. Uh, it would be kind of nice if, um, if these two superpowers with a lot of power and a lot of resources uh, could, uh, could uh, figure out how to have a better, better relationship. And freedom of freedom and access to each other's, you know, information and knowledge is, is one of the things that's really key to that. Yeah, crucial. I think we will leave it there. I mean, I could go on for another hour yeah, talking about talk this about. stuff. Yeah, but we'll have that. Just means we'll have to have you back on the show sometime soon. Absolutely. All Let right. me know. I'd be happy to. We'll do it again. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. And thank you. And have a great weekend. That was University of Maryland professor Cynthia L. Martin. Before signing off today, I want to alert our college faculty members who may be listening to a new opportunity. Earlier this week, FIRE put out a call for papers relating to academic freedom and freedom of expression in higher education. We are looking for faculty to present on these papers at our 2020 faculty conference, taking place in Chicago from October 22nd to October 24th. The conference is by design highly interdisciplinary, and faculty in all disciplines are invited to apply. The works presented at the conference can take many forms, from quantitative research to more freeform critical narratives, so we seek to represent a wide range of viewpoints and methodologies at this conference and in these papers. Each presentation will be accompanied by a moderated panel discussion in which invited participants will offer responses, followed by a discussion among all attendees. We've done this at faculty conferences in the years past, and it's been well-received, and we're going to do it again this year. I should note that all accepted presenters who attend and present their completed papers will receive an honorarium of $3,000. We will also provide reimbursement for travel and lodging. We typically accept about six to eight proposals for the conference each year. If you're interested in submitting a paper, the deadline is June 15th, and more information can be found on our website, thefire.org. I'll also have a link in the show notes here. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org. We also take calling questions for future shows. You can reach us at 215-315-0100 and leave a voicemail there. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.